for which we are very grateful, we're finally on the air. We also thank all of our area listeners, members, and business supporters for your support and patience. So from now on, we are Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 Bangor. Listener supported and volunteer powered, a voice of many voices. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for power boats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island, redfernboat.com. It's 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Boat Talk with Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock in the morning. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9. Now 99.9 up in Bangor, WERU.org, all around the good wet planet of ours. Boat Talk is the only show on WERU Community Radio that waves all right. That was a good one. <laughs> Here's your hosts, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, your rusty anchors, and we're also joined by, again, Captain Giffy Full. Welcome back, Captain Giffy Full. And Eddie Monet, underwater superhero, here for uh, a little talk on, on trash, but we'll get around to that in a little while first. We'll go to uh, some local articles from the paper with Mike. Yeah, uh Glad Diver Ed's in here this morning. I told Diver Ed any time, uh, you know, you feel like saying anything, speak up. You're sitting right here. Phone's already ringing. Did we give the phone number already? No, we didn't. I guess we could. Uh, yes, it is. If call in show and you just call by dialing one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Yeah, we always uh, defer to people who want to come kick the keel and, and uh, ring the telephone. Uh, no doubt about that. Let's see if there is a telephone call there. Yep. <laughs> Why not? Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. Really? Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Um, I'm calling. Up. Hang on a second. Okay, now. <laughs> Let's try that again. Okay. Um, I'm calling about Comboating, the community boating organization ah. in Belfast. We know them. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Belfast is going to be another topic of a subject. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I'm few things. Um, one is on um, the 21st, we're having our season launch, which kind of kicks off the season from um, 11 to 2, and we, have, um, we take people out rowing and let them know about sailing, and we're rowing in our two 32-foot Cornish pilot gigs. And um, we have a community program all summer that starts in June that is free to the public, so you can become a member. Um, and we have rows scheduled almost every day of the week, sometimes twice a day, that we take anybody out for a row. 
Any, anybody. Anybody. <laughs> and don't have to live in Belfast. Nope. Anybody. Anybody. And I think we even had a 90-year-old person once. I was going to say young and old right yes. after that. Young and old. Um, and we're also on the 21st having an all-things nautical yard sale to benefit Cumboding. And that starts at 9 that morning. And uh, we're looking for donations of anything nautical. Uh, including, you know, gear and clothing and collectible and art or anything. Um, and all proceeds would benefit Cambodian. And um, I have a phone number of who you could call if you wanted to have something picked up or dropped off, if you want to drop something off at his place. Yep. Um, his ahead. name is Jim, and the number is 338 and you're looking for donations that you would would uh, then sell and, like, say, keep the proceeds as opposed to renting me yes. a table to sell my marine junk, just for instance? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cool. To help benefit this fabulous organization. Uh, last year we took over 1,000 people out rowing. Wow. So, um, you know, it's really... It's a great thing. Yeah, it's a stroke of genius. It is. <laughs> yeah, we've also, last year we added community sailing program, and um, that uh, has trained skippers who take people out a couple times a week for free sails on a Drascom. A Drascom lugger is the uh, kind of boat you're talking about there. It's a very traditional uh, rigged uh, open sailing boat. What a beautiful thing, the democratization of, of going boating, come boating. Yeah. And again, uh, you ever see a lot of people frowning around the boats? <laughs> Not much. No, again, it's a pretty happy place, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have any uh, any items for your auction already there that are interesting you'd like to tell us about? Not that I know of. <laughs> well, I'm we sure so. some of the people who are listening will probably come up with some interesting yes. things to donate for you. Yes. Maybe somebody will give her a row no more. <laughs> a row no more. You should come dig through my dooryard. i got plenty of stuff there. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> I've just had to move some of my old boat gear, which calls into question what, what it's doing where and why, you know. So yeah. uh, we could talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to see about that. Well, thank you for calling this yeah. morning. We always support come boating and... Again, uh, it's just fun to go down to the Belfast uh, waterfront there, the uh, Harbor Park, and see the happy people in the boats, even if you're not one of them. You know, that'd be, I think, one of the first steps. Yes, we also sometimes will take a passenger in one of those rowing boats, because we have six rowers, and then sometimes there'll be a couple, and one of them doesn't really want to row, but they might want to go for a ride. So we, we do that, too. Excellent. And um, we do have a website if anyone wants to check in and get more information about how they could become a member if they wanted to and about all our other events and programs, and that is comboating.org. Well, thank you for calling this morning. Good job of, uh, like say, talking to Rupp and, and uh, again, uh, what's not to love at Comboating. Yeah. Thank you for being there. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having this great show. Yeah. Well, uh, come boating, centered in Belfast, but of course you don't have to be from Belfast. You could just wander down to the harbor front anytime and uh, uh, call those people and catch them. They're, they're around quite Let's a bit. Let's give that number one more time. Yeah, uh, I wrote down the number for the flea market, uh -huh. um, which was 338-0136. Call up Jim. 
and I may have some stuff. <laughs> Hope you got a big truck, Jim. Yep. Um, Want to talk about Belfast while we're while we're right in the neighborhood well, in the there area, because yeah. Belfast is in the news. There's a new shipyard going into Belfast on the old uh, cannery yeah. property there, the sardine cannery, and. Uh, Here's what I would like you to understand about this shipyard. It's not your average boatyard, and you've got to think of it as kind of a different animal. And there was a meeting in Belfast a little while ago. The uh, headline in the uh, Bangor Daily News, Shipyard Size Shocks Belfast Neighbors. And uh, here's a fellow that says, uh, you know, neighbor that says, it's no secret I'm livid about the prospect of a monstrosity being built in my front yard. For the city and homeowners, this is a lose-lose proposition. True, the goings-on at the shipyard will attract gawkers, but so do car crashes. Dan Clark, Belfast resident, Bangor Daily News. Um, here's the thing about this boatyard. We're all used to boatyards down here, and uh, this is not a boatyard. They're calling it a shipyard for a, a reason, and I think of it more as a mega yacht yard. And in my uh, understanding of this, at this boatyard, the small boats will be about 100 feet. Okay, and there's not a lot of yards around here that can can haul a hundred foot power sailboat, and there are an increasing amount of them out in the yard, out in the world. And you may or may not uh, favor how fast those people are raking it off the top and buying yachts with it, but uh, you know, I always liked the trickle down theory when I was sitting in the back seat of the boss's jet, you know. And, and so we're trying to put up a business here. These people are very experienced in the marine world, and they're taking this a step up. And you have to understand, these are very large boats. They come with crews. All these boats will have live-aboard crews from two to however many people. And uh, these people will stay in town and go out to dinner all the time and buy stuff. They're looking for a town that is interesting enough for the crews to live in for a while while these projects happen. And we're talking, uh, you know, uh, major refits on big boats. Here's another thing, boat, boat talk... Uh, pet peeve about these boats, very few of them will have American flags, I betcha. Okay, most of them will be flying the British Ensign, be registered in, in the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're American uh, owners, but they're tax dodges. And again, do we want that business or not? Um, I think it's a good idea. So, uh, Giffy. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, what little bit I uh, know of it, I'm, I'm more or less all for it. I, I see that, you know, sometimes these local problems have to be resolved. But there's several things that are positive about it. Uh, Belfast is a good deep water, has good deep water access. It's generally a safe, well-protected harbor. And the harbor appears to me to be fairly well-managed, has a full-time harbor master, it's reasonably well-organized, and a, a, a pleasant waterfront. And it's a geographically uh, well-loaded to, uh, well-located uh, well, uh, um, for getting access from the west and north and south and so forth. And <clears throat> the other thing is the people that, that are the owners now of this property and are putting it together are all extremely well-experienced people. They also have, besides that, they have excellent reputations for doing business properly. And uh, to me, it's, uh, it's, it's probably a very good thing for the area, although from some neighbor's standpoint, it may not be perfect. But uh, people want work here, they want business here, and there has to be some 
come and go in a situation like this. Uh, also, we happen to live, I believe, in an area that is extremely uh, well populated with very experienced craftsmen. We have a uh, we have no dearth of uh, experienced craftsmen. Doesn't make whether it's any difference whether it's woodworking, shipbuilding, uh, metal smithing, whatever. We have all the people in this area to do it, and and I think it's it's an ideal thing to press forward with. Our friend uh, Diver Ed, that's in as a guest this morning, Diver Ed used to be the harbor master over oh, yeah. Bar Harbor. You've probably seen a couple of these mega yachts come and go and tie up to the wall there, haven't you? Seen them, been aboard them, yeah. yeah Clean the bottoms of them, and <laughs> I worked, of... I worked on them before they were called mega yachts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in their own, in their own way, they're their own planets in in a lot of ways, aren't Crazy. they? Crazy, oh, unbelievable. I, I, just what you see on the outside is nothing compared to what it's like on board. A lot of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them is not quite, but you know, just the artwork and the. Like you were saying, the woodwork and uh, it's crazy. I, I'm usually amazed at the engine rooms. Oh, spick yeah. and span. Oh, yeah. Well, these boats today are very, very complicated. They're not simple boats. And it requires a, a wide range of craftsmen to service them. And oh. there is a major, major market in servicing these major, major boats. And again, other, we don't participate in it. The other um, thing that's... Uh, uh, French and Webb is another very, very good boatyard right there. And my feeling is that they operate, they're going to be operating in different fields, and I think they will wind up complementing each other. So yep. I, think it, I think it's all pretty, pretty positive. I hope that they will be able to resolve the uh, building issue, and they will be able to put up the proper building that they want. You've got to understand these these big yachts today, uh, with all your EPA regulations and everything, they have to be in a climate-controlled building when they get service work. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about major service work, repairs or particularly painting work. It's all done mostly spray work with uh, very, very, um, have to be toxic paints and have to be in a... Con- Climate control building. And we're talking aircraft hangar size buildings that have yeah. to be tall. Yeah. Well, I think probably part of, a lot of the problem is people have seen it's a lot of these boatyards, especially down south, where they're almost all the uh, the blue sheet metal, metal buildings, which would not fit aesthetically very well, I think, with downtown yeah. Belfast. So I think there's concern more about the looks from the outside than than the actual yeah. environmental problems. but. I've got the latest issue of Power and Motor Yacht in my hand here. I don't usually read it, but it was given to me. And the cover story, America's 100 Largest Yachts. Yeah. And the top 10 go from 250 to 450 feet. And as I said, at this shipyard, they're, plan- they're, they're not planning. They're working on it in Belfast as hard as they can. Get it going this summer right now. Um, the small boats will be in the 100-foot range. And, again, yeah. it's, a different, uh, it's a different cat. Right now, you go down to Newport and you see these things hauled out. You think they look like something in the water? You should see them on land. Wow, they are overwhelming. Uh, uh, also, the other factor is from a from a employment status. Uh, we're in a very competitive area. Uh, we we can cost wise can compete with probably anybody else. We already have a great reputation. Yeah. 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 
And so again, I think the whole thing is a, on it. is a very positive thing, and I think there's some way to resolve any building issue. Just yeah, yeah, got to do I agree. it. And we love to hear from you about that or anything this morning. But in a second here, we are going to take time to uh, talk with hopefully Dr. Sean Todd over at the College of the Atlantic. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, change the subject to Wales a little bit in a minute here. He has a class this morning, so we have to get him when we can. Can't really tell what's going on with the phone there. Um, um, but again, the, uh, uh, the shipyard, um, a different kind of boat. Uh, uh, you don't see a lot of them cruising down here all that much. Bar Harbor they use as yeah. a destination. But they don't go around the they rocky ledges all that no, much no. down here. They don't like the fog and, and all the ledges and stuff. And that's just a fact. Um, yeah. Can I give you another phone number here? Somebody say something. Like we, we're right. You're listening to uh-huh. Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU, Blue Hill. And the phone number to call in if you'd like to talk about Belfast or anything else, Wales, 1-800-866-625-9378. What's, uh, what's Diver Ed here got to tell us about this morning? Well, we were going to get to uh, talking about some trash in a minute, but uh, while we're trying to get Sean Todd there, can we mention real fact, fast, uh, and we hate to rush it at all, but uh, uh, Dynamite Payson has passed on. Dynamite Payson, yeah. pretty famous main boat builder. Did you know him at all, Giffy? I never did. Just, just... Just a little bit. Yeah, just from around the wooden boat uh, yeah, place. Yeah, when he first came there. Yeah. yeah. Dynamite Payson was a uh, local fellow down to South Thomaston. He lobstered. He built the odd little skiff for himself and stuff. And then uh, in the 60s, he got asked to build a Phil Bolger-designed boat. And Phil Bolger is a uh, designer of some uh, fantastic reputation for building, as they say, Bolger boxes. He thinks very outside the box. A lot of very uh, unusual boats come from him, but... Um, Phil Bolger and Dynamite Payson started a, a working relationship that turned into a lifetime friendship and really changed Dynamite's life. Um, he had the gift of, of uh, doing and showing, okay, but he was a high school dropout. And uh, uh, Bolger came to him and says, uh, you know, you ought to write a book about that Dynamite. Dynamite. I can't write a book. What are you talking about? Well, it turns out he wrote ten, <laughs> and they were excellent and uh, led to a uh, little renaissance and a new career for Dynamite Payson, who became an author, a uh, teacher, a video star, and like I say, was taken up around the wooden boat uh, uh, school and stuff, and really had a hell of a little go at it. And Dynamite Payson, I never met him, but bought, I didn't call him Dynamite for nothing, okay? <laughs> we do have uh, Sean on the phone, so let's, let's jump oh, right over to that. Glad to hear it. Good, Good morning, Sean. Yep. Good morning. How are you all? We're very good. Morning, John. There's Eddie Monday, too. You remember him? Hey, hey Eddie. <laughs> hey. <laughs> uh, Dr. Sean Todd from Allied Whale College of the Atlantic. We had you on, I believe it was in January, and we were at the time uh, talking about how you you folks were out on the boat uh, looking for right whales, and were finding more right whales in the Gulf of Maine last winter than you'd ever noticed or, or believe would be there before. Um, they seem to have uh, disappeared uh, in February or so, but I saw in the paper a couple of weeks back that pretty much three-quarters of the right whales on Earth, which is only a couple hundred, just gathered off of the tip of Cape Cod, right at Provincetown, and right hard into the beach, and they're there feeding and frolicking and, and providing some great whale watching. Having so a convention. Yeah, we just wanted to catch up with you, Sean. Uh, where them whales spend the winter, and what are they doing? 
Well, we've uh, we've been good to, since we last talked to you, myself and Dr. Mo Brown. We've uh, continued to work on on the problem. Uh, I guess we have a few updates for you. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start off with a quick qualification. It's, it's not that the whales weren't seen there before. It's just that this is the first time that we've started looking for them in the Gulf of Maine in the winter time. Um, as you know, the, uh, the the weather in the Gulf of Maine is such that. Uh, it's almost impossible to get out there on a consistent basis to survey the area. And uh, it's only been in the past couple of years we've had planes flying over the area to notice that, uh, indeed, this does appear to be a place that's really important. So uh, Mo and I have been uh, approaching the problem from two different directions. Uh, uh, she's been uh, through uh, New England Aquarium and in cooperation with the Bar Harbor Whale Watch. Uh, she's been operating uh, visual transects, so taking boats out there in the winter, obviously having to choose your days, make sure the weather's good enough to get out there and look for the animals. And then uh, the approach that my lab has been taking at, at the college, um, I, I have a grad student and several undergraduates working on an acoustics project whereby we listen for the whales instead. And, you know, the technology has got to the point now where everything's so miniaturized that we can, uh, we can put a, a hydrophone out there and listen for whales pretty much 24-7 uh, for three to four months of the year. So, uh, you know, we go out there, we drop the piece of equipment on the seafloor, and we let it alone. And then we come back four months later, we pick it up, we dump the information from the hard drive, and we start to analyze it. And so what I could tell you at that, so, so when I talked to you last time, um, you know, our buoy was out there doing its recording. And, and since then, you know, we've, we've analyzed a lot more of the data that came in from last year, and we've still got a buoy out there this year that we're hoping to pick up in the very near future. And what we can tell you is, is that, um, there are an extraordinary amount of vocalizations happening um, out at this time, of, uh, out at that time of year. Certainly, the late fall, early winter. Uh, this, peer, you know, combined with uh, Dr. Brown's findings, this appears to be a very, very popular spot for right whales. Um, they're making plenty of vocalizations. Uh, um, Jackie Bort, my graduate student, has been counting in the tens of thousands of calls, which is just extraordinary. Uh, and it appears to be that this could may well be a breeding ground. If you, if you do the math and you figure out the gestation period for the right whale, um, this appears to be about the right time that whales would be mating um, because the gestation period takes about a year and they'd be giving birth next year down in, the, uh, in South Carolina and Georgia. And so it looks like we've discovered a really important area. Something as important as the whales breeding, we, we don't have that fine a picture on it. And we talked last time on Boat Talk about attaching transmitters to the whales. And we established that they like to rub against each other too much. <laughs> they're too huggy to wear transmitters. But, uh, that, they're, that but they're noisy really while they're huggy, which I guess is good, you know. <laughs> yes, um, there, there are certain calls. Um, there are certain calls that we are fairly comfortable associating with, if not actually specific breeding activity, the courtship activity that leads to breeding. Uh, and those are the calls that we've been identifying. So, uh, and it's not just actually right whales. We are hearing all kinds of animals in this area. It's kind of like, you know, if, if you look, you'll find them. Um, we've, um, you know, we, I, I have students here working on uh, different projects. They're, they're seeing humpback whales out there, um, humpback whales that are singing, which is really unusual for the north, for, the, for, for this area. They don't usually sing up here. They usually wait till they go down south before they start singing. And singing, again, is a courtship activity. Uh, at least we believe it is. Uh, we have say whales out there. We have fin whales. Uh, we think we have minke whales. So, you know, it's, it, this is just turning out to be an area that's uh, an amazing hotspot that we really just did not know about because we never had the power to get out there, the technology to get out there and look at this area at this time of year. By yeah. listening, we have discovered that the tree does make a noise when it falls in the forest with nobody yeah, around. Exactly. Yeah. Is that the Jordan Basin? Is that the area? 
Well, you know, it's funny. Every, everyone calls it Jordan Basin, um, but actually, technically, it's not Jordan Basin. It's actually out of Fall, uh, which is the ridge to the, uh, right. the west of Jordan Basin. Right. It's, a, it's about... Uh, the hotspot activity appears to be centered somewhere between 30 to 40 miles south of Idaho. Cool. I, I also became aware of years ago that, that the porpoises uh, will stay all winter, too. That's right, yes. Yeah. And, you know, porpoise, again, are just so tough to work with because they're tiny and, they're, you know, you need, the, you need the calmest of conditions to be able to see what they're doing. Uh, we do know they hang around here because every now and then we get, we get one, unfortunately, caught in a net. And, you know, that's, that's, that's usually the end of the porpoise, but it's at least a record that the animal was in the area at that time of the yeah. year. We, we know so little about these animals because they spend 99.9% .9 of their time underwater where we can't see them. And, you know, the only time we do see them is when they come up for that brief breath. So designing technologies such as acoustics or, or tags or whatever it might be uh, to help us learn a little bit more about what these animals do when they're in the underwater part and not visible to us is really, really important. Sean, you have a long experience between your uh, education in Newfoundland to here, this, this end of the ocean. Are things changing as the species mix and the seasonality of the animals changing as the water gets warmer? That's a great question, and I think it's, it's a question that uh, many, many of us are very, very interested in at this point. Um, the, the problem is, is that we're right at the beginning. In terms, of, in terms of time and shift, we're right at the beginning of that shift, if a shift is indeed occurring. Um, it, it, it's a huge concern um, because it, it's definitely going to affect, that, you know, obviously we're going to get warmer temperatures, and that can affect things such as spawning activity of fish. Um, we're also going to get um, acidification of the ocean as well, and that, in two, could, it too could affect productivity. But whales, for all their size, um, certainly you know, the baleen whales, rely on incredibly uh, microscopic-sized prey to survive, um, which we call plankton. And that plankton um, is very, very much at the whim of ocean chemistry and physics. Uh -huh. So you know, the reason why, for example, you've had that amazing sighting of right whales off uh, Provincetown right now is because the oceanographer of the area has colluded in some way to create a hotspot of copepods, which is the main feed for right whales. At that particular time, you know, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a chaotic type random process, and every now and then everything, everything clicks, and they all come together to, to form this massive concentration, and the whales come and they feed upon that. Um, as we um, alter uh, the, the ocean's chemistry and the ocean's physics, we potentially alter its productivity potential, how, how it can produce plankton that, that other creatures feed upon. It's not just the whales. You know, obviously the fish are, are, are higher up in the trophic chain as well. So our fisheries could be affected too. The, the answer to your question is, is, is frankly not known because uh, the ocean is such a complex system that there are just too many variables that we don't quite understand yet and we can't really model, even with the power of computers we have now. Uh, but it's definitely something we have to be very, very aware of. And there are quite a few grant initiatives right now from the government trying to look at the effects of climate change. A lot of job security there for scientists, Dr. Sean. Yeah, can I just, uh, just if you have the right kind of technology, yes. Yeah, yeah. I just want to say one thing. One of the students at the college that I'm working with is uh, in a project that I started doing with another student a while back is we're looking at uh, uh, recording exact spots underwater and uh, making a count of species so that over time we can determine what changes are happening underwater because you know I've been diving for 29 years and and I see changes all the time but I haven't been able to actually 
you know, identify exactly what's going on. And uh, so it's a, it's a big project we've been doing with the GIS mapping. And, uh, and so and one of the students right now for his graduate work, uh, for his uh, uh, senior project at the college, is uh, taking that and looking at four places. And we're hoping that our group, the League of Underwater Superheroes, is going to take that over <laughs> in the future so it gets done. And we want to add more locations and do it year-round because we're diving year-round anyhow. So. Uh, yeah, and I absolutely applaud that kind of work. That's sort of what we call a longitudinal data set is absolutely yeah. essential to understand these trends. And one of the issues that we've had, and it's, it's kind of the same for, for, for uh, climate change in general, is, is trying to sort out whatever shifts we see. Are they shifts that are caused by manipulation by man, or are they shifts that are just natural? You know, right. We do have the ability to go back in the record now and we know that the ocean is predictably unpredictable. You know, it does vary from year to year, just as, you know, in air we have right. hot years and we have cold years. The weather changes. Well, the weather changes under the ocean as well from year to year. Once you have enough data points and you can see the general trend, you can start to sort out that general variation from perhaps a manipulated variation that's perhaps caused by, by ocean warming or ocean acidification or whatever. Well, I, I, I happen to learned some things a accidentally in a long time ago back in the late 60s early 70s we were doing sauna boy projects where we put hydrophones oh, 80 90 feet underwater and that's how we learned about the porpoises around we heard them before we ever saw yeah. them we see them in the winter time where yeah. scalloping and stuff yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly a very noisy ocean out there, and acoustics is starting out to be a, a really interesting way to investigate the ocean. You can use acoustics to tell you some things about the quality of the water. Uh, you can even use it to tell the temperature of the water, believe it or not. There's ways to do that. Um, and, uh, the, but the key to, the, the key to the, the, the using acoustics to study animals is the animals have to make noise. And, you know, just, just like you or me, we're not making noise all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes we're talking, sometimes we're not. I'm not sure, sure um, about that. That's, that's all in my life. That's the females. <laughs> if they, if, you think if they knew we were listening to them do it, they'd try to be quieter? Yeah, right. <laughs> the, other, the other interesting thing has not much bearing on noise, but a long time ago I've caught mackerel in the wintertime. Mm, that's unusual. deeper water. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. you know, and I, I think that's partly because, you know, we're just not out there during the rougher times of the year because it just doesn't make any sense in terms of safety and what have you, but um, that, there may well be some very viable prey populations out there in the wintertime that these whales can be feeding upon. Sure. Now, they don't, they don't necessarily need them. The way that whales work, the way their life history works, their life cycle is, is that they spend most of their summer fattening up, and then they, they fast through the winter. So they don't necessarily need to feed over the winter, although they can find it, of course they'll do it. Um, so, you know, any, any food that they find in the Gulf of Maine, if they're here in the winter, is just a bonus for them. We're doing Boat Talk this morning. We're about halfway through it. It's Community Radio, WERU. we got Dr. Sean Todd from Allied Whale on the uh, phone, been talking about whales and stuff. Uh, Doc Sean, you got to go uh, teach class in a minute, but before you go, uh, we're talking about the chemistry and feeding. Um, we're going to talk with Diver Ed here about underwater trash, and i got a great book here called Moby Duck, which is uh, about uh, ocean plastic trash. And uh, this fellow, one fellow in the book estimates that there is a, uh, 
a, um, a particle of plastic in every cubic meter of the ocean, more or less. And uh, think of that as a bathtub and how many bathtubs in the ocean. And gets right down to, uh, there are sand beaches in Hawaii that are mostly plastic sand. There is uh, uh, plankton surveys that they do that come up heavily. Um, there's lots of tiny particles of plastic in there. Nobody digests plastic, but it lasts forever. And it breaks down into smaller and smaller particles that, again, uh, adsorb um, things cling to them, uh, big molecules like uh, uh, DDT, for instance, and become bioaccumulated in large animals that feed on especially small animals. Does that, any of that make any sense to you? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. This is, the, this is the book by Donovan Hoden, right? Yeah, I highly yeah. recommend it, to uh, tell you yeah, the truth. Exactly. Moby it's, Duck, uh, it's called. I haven't read it yet, but I, I've heard good things about it. The, you know, the this, this issue of plastics, again, it's, it's one of these things where, as our technology gets better to detect stuff, we, we find it in the ocean. Uh, and, uh, again, I, I, I have another undergraduate student here. I, I think of another undergraduate student here at the college who is involved intensely in this. And she, she spent most of last year dipping plankton nets, which had a fine enough mesh size, uh, to collect samples of water and find them loaded with plastic. Uh, and, you know, not quite sure what the source is, but uh, I think if you take it to some of these uh, forensic people, they can probably figure out what the sources are. But to some extent, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter because it's there now and it's very, very difficult to get rid of. It's just at a microscopic level. Yeah. Now, does it, you know, does it affect a whale? Um, I don't know. It, it might. It was certainly probably more likely to affect the prey of the whale, and if the prey of the whale is affected, the whale could be affected that way. We just don't know. Yeah, so but you can, one thing, let me interject, you, we can all do something about it. And, I, and, I totally agree. And I for a long time, it's been my practice and several other people I know, when they go ashore on a island or a beach, they take a plastic shopping bag with them to pick up trash. And uh, I, I never go in my boat. If I see a plastic bag floating in the water, I go turn around and go back and pick it up. More and more, more people. You know, I grew up lobstering, and we used to throw the hydraulic fluid containers in the water and salt, stuff. Just salt as a, bags. Yeah. yeah, just as a kid, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing and just did what my dad was doing and stuff. And, uh, and it didn't take long to learn that it wasn't a good idea. But, you know, even... Even fishing, even as Sternman with a lot of the guys I've gone with, I've seen changes in their way they handled things. Now a lot of guys have, uh, you know, a trash bag on board or something like that, too, instead of just chucking it all in the water. And, yeah, and this, yeah. Uh, I mean, these, these biodegradable bags, you know, when they biodegrade, they still produce these microscopic pieces right. of plastic. So by biodegradable, they just mean it, it will reduce the point that you can't see it. Right. It doesn't mean it isn't still there. One of my favorite points from this book, Moby Duck, is that we use this plastic because it's ultimately disposable. Chemically, it lasts forever. Right. It's not disposable it at all. Where did it come from? The plastic? Yes. Our yes. lifestyle is just uh, incorporated no, plastic. No, what? No, less, no. Less than the last 100 oil. years. Oil. Right, right. Yes, it does. But again, our lifestyle, 100 years ago, there wasn't plastic nothing. Now there's plat we couldn't possibly do anything without it. Even 40 years ago, there was paper cups and paper bags, and where do they come from? Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of jobs lost right well, there. anyway, and that's made the phone ring. Sean, uh, like I say, I, I know you got a, a class this morning, and we, we certainly have enjoyed talking to you. I would love to stay in chat, but unfortunately, uh, yeah, the real job calls. We'll just, uh, we'll just have you again. Yeah, Thank we'll you. talk to you again. I, I, I would love to do that. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, see you soon.
Dr. Sean Todd, Allied Whale, over to the College of the Atlantic, over to Bahaba, Maine. And uh, I can't tell if the phone's ringing or not. This uh, book is, again, quite delightful. It's entitled Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea, and the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author who went in search of them, Donovan Hone, H-O-H-N. And let's, uh, let's, let's hear from my guest. I, I actually got a great story about that. Um, you know, uh, I've been scalloping this winter, and in the hot water barrel, uh, uh, this guy, Mother, who's the stern man uh, that's been helping me, uh, my tender scalloping, he's got three of those rubber ducks that he found out on the ocean, and he just put some drywall screws in the bottom, they just float around in our hot water barrel. But it's kind of a reminder of it's the actual ducks that we found, never mind all the other. These these ducks in, in question in the book were they fall off a container ship in a big storm and they end up on beaches everywhere, um, primarily in the northern Pacific, but also in the Atlantic. Yeah, Try to wrap crazy. your head around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. How could they get from one ocean to the other like that? And they're thinking the Northwest Passage. Northwest Passage, uh, you know, yeah, right? Hard yeah. hard telling. Of course, it's better going there nowadays. But we, do. we, um, have, we have another phone call. So yeah, let, let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Uh, years ago, in the early 70s, I worked in uh, Connecticut in Long Island Sound, and we were doing uh, environmental impact work for the nuclear power plant there. And we would tow bongo nets for fish larvae. And in those nets, we would catch little beads of plastic that were just about the same size as the fish eggs. Now that's, I don't know, 30-some-odd years ago. So plastic deal is not a new problem. Uh, I just want to point out that it's been around for a while and it takes a long time for it to go away. Well, technically speaking, it never goes away. It's it just worse, breaks really. down into smaller and smaller particles is basically what it does. And again, nobody eats them, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> you know? Well, trouble is, the fish do, you see. Well, here's an autopsy on an albatross, okay? Apparently, albatross, uh, you can take any albatross you like, and they're going to be full of plastic. This one albatross, uh, they autopsied it. It had 252 pieces of plastic in it, mostly bottle caps and cigarette lighters and unidentified plastic shards. Yeah. 252 uh, uh, big lighters. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and coke, coke caps, you know. Uh, hope he and they fire. skim and they pick up anything uh, that's, uh, you know, bright on the surface. And, and again, they are full of it. Uh, we've got Teflon in us, apparently, and, and all kinds of other chemicals. Uh, I'm drinking tea out of a plastic cup. I was at a friend's house the other night. He was horrified when I put it in his microwave to get it hot again. He begged <laughs> me not to. I told him, I'd, you know, I thought so, too, but it wasn't going to kill me tonight. That explains it, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just for example, I mean, we're, we're, our own, we're all a contradiction. And again, try to do anything for the rest of the day without plastic. Yes, well... I think we've lost that phone call, but it was a good one. Yeah. Putting up a good yeah. point. It's not a new thing. So sure. Diver Red, uh, head of the the League of Underwater Superheroes. Yep. yep. Right. And uh, you organized a cleanup in Bar Harbor the other day. Now, I've seen a couple of roadside cleanups, and it'll blow you away what they pull out of the yeah. ditch on the side oh, yeah. of the road. But yeah. you did it with with uh, uh, underwater superheroes, yeah. with, with scuba divers. Yeah, we actually uh, started our cleanups um, Back when I took on the harbor master job in 1995, we used to do it in the fall during Coast Week, and uh, me and my I had a couple of awesome deputies working for me, 
uh, Val Peacock and Jen Literal. They did most of the organizing of it. But uh, we used to have, you know, tons of people that uh, come down and work shoreline and underwater. And uh, we continued doing it for a long time. We didn't do it two years ago because I was building my new boat. Uh, so I, my spring was gone during our Earth Day time. But then uh, we started back up again last year. And, and uh, this year is, I think, our best underwater turnout. We had 12 divers. It was so busy, I couldn't even get in the water. I was just making sure everyone had all the right gear. All, and all from your own boat? Yeah, yeah, we used our we used our boat. We used an inflatable from the college, my inflatable and my 51-footer. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we also used the floats, uh, the Fisherman's Float and Bar Harbor. Right uh, tight the in the pier. harbor there, off yeah. the town pier. Yeah. What yeah. do we find underwater in Oh, uh, we find all kinds of stuff. We find this muddy, year, It's muddy down there. Muddy, yeah, it. there's a lot of mud. Uh, Visibility is really horrible. Water was uh, 42 degrees, so, you know, obviously it's not warm this time of year. But uh, uh, the coolest things we got, we got an uh, awesome skateboard out of the water this year. And uh, an old bicycle is been buried for a while they just found part of it in a hot we hauled it up and uh you know it was really cool looking because it was just a big pile of rust and stuff but we and a computer hard drive came out and we find a lot of real historical stuff like uh, one of the divers this year found a, a intact bullet bottle from the 1800s and nice. uh last year we got a a, a whole clay pipe with the stem and everything wow. out of it you know wow. and uh, we had a big nor'easter right before that so uh there's still a lot of old artifacts too that come up in the harbor and we and uh one of the plates that was found this year was that had the uh old steamship uh, logo on it that used to come back into bar harbor so it's a lot of cool historical stuff too that comes in that we find in in amongst all the regular junk some of the some of the moorings around bar harbor certain moorings in particular <laughs> are more productive uh we you know went back when we had a big dragger fleet in the that's harbor that's interesting yeah, yeah. Thunder, you, I, I found the bay way yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the old <laughs> captain blymore and i found the coolest thing i ever found underwater was there but i don't think i can say it on the air because it's uh, okay then we we <laughs> several <laughs> beverage bottles though i'll bet you found oh yeah tons of, yeah we got all kinds of <laughs> and the, we'll go to the telephone in a minute but i gotta ask you about the uh the bronze bust oh yeah found a uh a bronze bust, bust of uh, Proctor from Proctor and Gamble, and uh, it was cool because it was it was hard. I actually found that um, right. At, I don't know if you remember Raymond Hutchkins. We lost him at sea a long yeah. time ago. Lawrence's brother, but uh, anyhow, this was in uh, late '80s, and uh, it was buried in, in in the mud. But we've been a month trying to find Raymond, trying to uh, tow up his boat. Uh, off of uh, Pearly Fogg's old uh, Surf King, we had put the outriggers out with grapplings on it, and we, but it was a we had a you know month of fog, and you could see debris and fuel in the water, but just couldn't get a hold of the boat. But anyhow, uh, I was in diving, and uh, that same guy, mother, was tending me, and uh, and you know we came over at the ferry terminal. I came across a, just a face like sticking out of the mud which is a little freaky <laughs> yeah. and i dug it out and uh, yeah a bust a cast bronze bust i brought it in and i had uh uh um raymond um uh, raymond strout look at it for me and he got the name off of the um 
off the Boston and did the research and found out it was Proctor from Proctor and Gamble. But I guess that was the old Proctor estate up at the where ferry does, terminal. Where mm. does Mr. Proctor gaze out uh, from his bronze visits now? Ed? Oh, he's right on my sideboard in the living room. Right in the there. living room, yeah. proper thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one more aside before we answer the phone here. Alan and I interviewed John Baldacci a couple of years ago at a, a boatyard, and, and he had with him his security guy, a state police guy. Mm -hmm. And I actually fenced him in against the table saw on his gun side, and I figured we had the governor. But the security guy was a nice fellow. He was on the, uh, his, most of his career had been spent on the uh, state police dive team. Mm. And oh, yeah. I says, whoa, pretty good gig, isn't yeah. it? That's good duty. Yeah. And he looked down at his shoes, and I went, oh, dead people. He goes, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know. Yeah, before the state did it, we used, to, we used to get called in. You know, I used to do all the body recovery around here. Oh. And, uh, and then I actually trained some of the divers that work on that team now. But, yeah, they, now they get their own training uh, divers and everything is built right up. How happy but, to find the bronze, uh, bronze face yeah, there yeah, is oh, all yeah. I'm saying. You died, died on any of the old wrecks around here? Yeah, we actually, another student I'm working with at the college is he's doing a, a, a photography project uh, of the wrecks around yeah, Mount Island. One that I know of was there was um, a wreck of a big steam yacht on, uh, on Duck Island. Oh, yeah. She went up there in the fog and punched a big hole in her, and she yeah. sank right there. Yeah, we actually got some, we just got some photos of that. There's only a little bit left showing yeah, of her, yeah. but uh, we got she, some of the she was ribs. A, she and, was a big boat, probably 250, so. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the unusual one down on, right off of, uh, oh, uh, oh. Allen's Island down there, and uh, off of Port Clyde, is, um, there's a steamer, a cement steamer, mm. built out of cement, went on the ledge there back in the early 30s or late 20s. Oh, that's cool. And probably there must be parts of her still laying there, the engine, parts of the engine. Oh, yeah, stuff. sure, yeah. Well, we're doing boat talk this morning. Now we're about three quarters of the way through at the number here, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. And I'm thinking somebody's standing by on the telephone there, Amy. Yep. Good, Good morning. morning. Sorry to make you Hi. wait. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thanks. Good morning. Always uh, enjoy listening to your show. Who are we speaking to? Uh, uh, this is Brian. Hi, Brian. I'm a I'm a ways inland from Rome, town. Yeah. Um, and I just saw an interesting article in the newspaper this morning, and I want to get you guys' take on it. Uh, the 30 grand that was just recently spent on tsunami evacuation signs down along the coast. <laughs> just wondering if, you, I wondered if you guys felt a little safer now, or what? Well, I've seen that they don't say it's tsunami. They just say evacuation route. And I'm thinking, you know, what are we going to be evacuating from? And, and the one that's on uh, my side of Mount Desert Island is actually pointing south, down towards the water. So I'm, yeah, I'm, not, I'm. You're right. I'm a little bit confused about the the real value of now. Those. I'm upset. I don't know about anything about no evacuation oh, they routes. Just, they just got them up too. Yeah, they're yeah. yeah, they're all along the coast now. Huh? Well, there was an interesting thing I saw in the paper this morning. Along with it was one of the comments was that um, one of the routes that they pointed to for evacuation uh, <laughs> typically floods at high tide. Um, so <laughs> oh, I nice. thought that that was kind of funny. 
Well, we won't be laughing when the big wave comes, I'll tell you what, because there's something more powerful on Earth except one of them big uh, E5 tornadoes, I would think, than, right. than uh, you know, a 100-foot wall of water coming at you. So, And, again, it's the junk in the water that will really mess you up, apparently, well, too. Don't we, laugh. I've seen a small tornado yeah. right here in Penobscot Bay. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's what well, thanks for the show, guys. I'll Thank you. Thanks, thanks for calling, Brian. Good morning. And I think we have another phone call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good, good morning. Yep, you're up. Hi, somebody there? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. speak right up. You're on Boat Talk this morning. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm on a cell phone. Probably not coming through too clearly. Huh? We we hear you. We hear you perfectly well. What are you What are you thinking about this morning? Oh, I was saying I was sick. Oops. We did hear him perfectly well. <laughs> Never <was that>. <laughs> right until <laughs> he got to the that point. Way. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight is the same thing as one eight six 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 two five W E R U. We're doing boat talk this morning. We've been talking about trash underwater now. Uh, like I say, we use plastic because it uh, is disposable, but chemically it lasts forever, and it breaks down into littler and littler tiny tiny pieces. Um, Sixty percent of all plastic trash will float. And again, we talked to the um, uh, catamaran people, the uh, plastic bottle catamaran people, Captain Joe, the English uh, lady who was ca catamaran oh, yes. uh, captain, Royal. going looking for the plastic uh, garbage patch out in the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, which they is, found it, too. Yeah, and you can find it in other oceans as well. It's fine. And, uh, these uh, plastic parts that float, they don't absorb any water. They'll float forever, and they break down into smaller and smaller particles. And again, those particles adsorb, not absorb, like take into, but adsorb things that sit on them. Molecules, uh, big big molecules uh, uh, like DDT, for instance, and, and the big bad um, environmental molecules that are, uh, uh, like I say, ride on these little plastic pieces, which are increasing all the time. And uh, speaking of plastic, the University of Maine has a solution here. It's a beautiful thing. Let's think we're on a cruise ship, and we like to hit some golf balls off the top deck. <laughs> well, a golf ball in the water, you, you may have found one, Ed. I don't know. I, I, got, a, I got a million of them. I grew I up uh, going through the water hazards, getting them out with my toes and selling yeah. them to other people, yeah, you know. Yeah. A golf ball in the water will last 100 to 1,000 years, they figure, okay? So how to hit a golf ball off a cruise ship? Well, the University of Maine's got the idea. They've made biodegradable golf balls out of lobster shells. And there are other biodegradable lobster, I mean, uh, uh, golf balls out, but you can't hit, they're too hard. You can't hit them with a driver. And these, you can hit them with a driver or a wood. They're meant to crack. They'll go 70% of the distance, and uh, they're meant to crack, and then the water gets in, and they biodegrade within a year. Hmm. University of Maine, just uh, trying to get a patent. And, uh, oh, that's too bad. I love finding golf balls. <laughs> on my Disney cruise liner in between uh, hanging out with the Disney uh, Mickey Mouse. And oh, man, uh, all along the shore of Mount Desert Island, there's golf balls everywhere. It's, you can tell where the rich people live because that's where the piles of golf balls are. <laughs> I've hit a few into the lake or the ocean myself, yeah, you know, right, no exactly. doubt about it. It's pretty fun. Right. And again, uh, so University of Maine is making biodegradable golf balls. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. And they're made not to play golf with, but specifically just to hit into the water for fun. Yeah. Yeah. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say one thing? I don't know. Well, yeah, anything while you hear me. Uh, any of the divers out there that would like to join the League of Underwater Superheroes or find out what we're all about can go to underwatersuperhero.com 
and there's a contact there you can send me an email and i can uh, put you on an email email list for all the different events because we got stuff going on all the time year round we're diving and uh, just about every sunday we're doing something a lot of weekends we got big things planned and stuff so uh community events and we go away different places we just brought a group of kids from mdi to uh down to florida to teach them how to dive in the in the uh, freshwater springs down there 10 to 12 year old kids and stuff so we do all kinds of things now, underwater so hockey and suppose i'm a, I'm a boat owner but i'm not a diver but i'd like to get involved with your underwater cleanup is there a possibility that oh yeah we do tons tons of uh yeah, you can, you can uh, definitely help out topside. We had about 35 people topside. For each diver, we really need like six to eight people on top because uh, once the stuff comes up, it's all covered with sea creatures. Plus, we catalog everything and send it into the um, Project Aware uh, uh, organization that keeps track of all the trash that's being cleaned up around the world. And uh, so it's a, it's a, there's a lot topside to do. For sure. And in, in, in radio, what you just did there, given the contact information and, and asking for uh, somebody to call, in radio world, that's called the call to action, okay? And I couldn't be more proud that we're doing boat talk and have a call to action for superheroes, you know? <laughs> How <laughs> yeah. great is that? The League that's of Underwater we Superheroes. We got one right yeah. here in person. Right. Yep. Speaking of that, there was another little uh, thing from this book, Moby Duck, again, it's about plastic trash that kind of blew me away. And... It is, in the introduction, it's talking about the six degrees of freedom. Have you ever heard of that, Giffy? Mm, no, I can't tell The <laughs> six degrees of freedom are the six possible motions available to a boat. And think about mm -hmm. that, because we live in a three-dimensional world, right? Right, right, right? But apparently a boat has six degrees of freedom. And th the three dimensions of what? Here, there, and over, over the other, uh, up, down, and the other, uh, you well, know, in, in, out, and... Forward, back, left, right. Whatever, yeah. Down and up would be really hard. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the six degrees of freedom, the motions that are possible for a vessel are rolling, pitching, yawing, heaving, swaying, and surging. Would you like to eat something greasy right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like just sitting still. <laughs> and speaking of that, Alan, how about the boat talk cruise? We got to talk about. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Boat talk Almost cruise. blew it. We got another one coming up yep. in a little bit. It's going to be coming up on Regular Friday. Going to be Friday evening this week, this year. Friday, June 24th, from six until nine p.m., leaving from the Northeast Harbor Town Dock on board the Giffy Full Design Boat Sea Princess beautiful little boat oh cool a three hour tour <laughs> and then there's uh food available it's a potluck and yeah, we lay it all out on the engine uh, box there and if you feel confident of the six degrees of freedom rolling pitching yawing heaving swaying and surging come get some good stuff to eat while we <laughs> go for a boat ride We've never had even close to a problem that boat is steady oh yeah uh, yeah. yeah it's been real Boy, real she's smooth steady. cruise yeah she really is. And Giffy, we hope to get you on the Boat Talk cruise one of What's these times. <laughs> the boat get donated for you guys' cruise? Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Sea Princess Cruises too, donated. Too many old memories there. That's great. <laughs> and uh, we, we were doing it once a year in the spring, but last year uh, they said to us, boy, we have a great time taking uh, you folks out if you'd like to do it in the fall. And we says, well, if you're offering the boat, and so we now do it twice a year. That's and great. it's a good little fundraiser for the radio station, and nobody's had a bad time yet. No, you cruise oh. around to a lot of the boat yards in the area and tell stories and look no, at I whatever we see. I took part of my family for a trip on that boat last year, and it was fun. 
Yeah, it's a good mm. boat. Nope, they go back and forth out of the Northeast Harbor Marina on a regular basis. We have princess. time to fit in one last phone call yeah. here on Boat Talk. Let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Who are we talking to? Good morning. This is Julian Kuffler. Good, good morning. Just a testimonial to Harold Dynamite Payson. Ah, thank oh, you. excellent. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. About 40 years ago, I was teaching at a school, Landmark School in North Shore, Boston, and we wanted to start up a boat building. So I talked to Phil Bolger and asked him what would be a good boat to build with kids. And he said, well, Gloucester Gull is a great boat, beautiful, and go talk to Dynamite Payson. So I put three or four kids in the school van, and we drove to South Thomaston. And by the end of the afternoon, these kids were all fired up having talked to Dynamite about building boats. And uh, we had a great start for a boat building program. Yep. Those kids have probably been spoiled for the rest of their lives, too. Mm, yeah. Well, great experience. And the, the nice part about it is a school for kids with uh, dyslexia. And so a bunch of them have minor problems or major problems with attention to detail. And nothing brings home the idea that if you can't get two planks to fit tight, the water will come in and you'll sink. Mm -hmm. Read in the paper, Julian, about other uh, uh, boat building programs here where they take the, the challenge students and they find that they can't wait to get up in the morning and go to school and work on the boat. Mm. Oh, it's a great reason to go to school. Yeah. The same thing, believe it or not, works for handicapped children with horses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a with beautiful horses, thing. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable what a difference it'll make. That's right. And once you build something that's beautiful, that works, you get a feeling that there's no end to the possibilities of what you can do. So did Dynamite stick with you right through the whole project? Well, you know, he, uh, he just sort of said, you have any questions, just let me know. Mm -hmm. And so now and then again we talked to him, and we sort of advanced through a number of different boats, but uh, the Gloucester Gull was the first beautiful, straightforward, easy. Does, is Landmark School still operating? Very much so. I had something to do with them years ago in boats that uh, were occasionally donated to them. That's right. We started a sailing program that uh, had big boats, small boats, and uh, they still do a little bit of all of that now. Yep, we're celebrating the passing this morning of uh, Dynamite Payson, and uh, he was a uh, pretty well-known main boat builder, lobsterman, and just a pretty strong character. <laughs> Thanks for that call. Thank you, Julian. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, that, that uh, hour goes pretty fast. Uh, Dive Red, so happy to have you in here hey, this morning. Hey, thank you guys uh, again. Once again, it's uh, great. Giffy Paul, uh, you know, hopefully making us look wiser and, and uh, uh, you know. Yeah, thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room again. Yep, and Boat Talk's the second Tuesday every month. You can check out BoatTalk.org and uh, listen to old ones and other stuff. Support for Boat Talk comes from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for a